Once again, good morning to everyone, especially also to those of us worshipping online. Uh, do say hello on the chat as well. Now, if, uh, if you are joining us for the first time, you would like to know that we are preaching a short sermon series following the Advent calendar, as we have also experienced in the lighting of the uh, Advent calendar earlier. So two weeks ago, Pastor Mihi reminded us of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, in God. And last week, Pastor Emmanuel shared on the peace of God that is available to us. So this week, we'll focus on the theme of joy. And the Lord brought to my mind Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, as our meditation, our focus for this morning's sermon. So let me read the word of God to us. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Let us pray. O Holy Spirit, we thank you for this word. We pray that you will cause your word to come alive to us, that, Lord, you will reveal your truths and, importantly, impart to us your joy. Commit this sermon and our hearts and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I suppose many of us are very familiar with the last phrase, you know, in this verse, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Maybe you even have a cup or something, a shirt with this Bible verse. But I think the first part of this verse must be every foodie's favorite part. Pastor Melvin was here at 8 a.m. service. I see Biao Chuan here, myself, foodies, right, Ming Shun. It gives us full permission to enjoy choice food and drinks. Why? Because literally, according to the Hebrew, this verse says, Go eat fatness <laughs> and drink sweet drinks. Sioba, eh, Biao Chuan, Sioba, we are coming for you. Sioba, roast pork, Christmas party, crackling German pork knuckle. <laughs> But before Health Promotion Board comes after us, uh, better tell you the context. Huh? <laughs> Don't take this verse out of context and then just apply it every day without context. So very briefly, Nehemiah and Ezra, they had led some exiles back uh, to rebuild Jerusalem. And we typically remember Nehemiah as the guy who galvanized the whole city to rebuild the walls in a record 52 days. But we tend to forget that Ezra, the priest, he played an instrumental role too in teaching and reading the word of God, the laws of God to God's people. So we begin at the same chapter, but at verse 5, Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up, you know, to hear the reading of God's word, to honor God's word. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And so they were bowing down in worship, you know, worshiping the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then the Levites, I won't read the names of people here, they instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. So they were teaching, reading and teaching. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. So it's not just reading what was written in the words, but also explaining, maybe like teaching, sermons and stuff. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn. Or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now the people were weeping because they were convicted of their sin. They were deeply convicted. They understood finally why they were sent into exile, the 70 years into Babylon, that they and their ancestors, they had been stiff-necked, disobedient, rebellious people, adulterous people. If you read the next chapter, Nehemiah chapter 9, you will see the prayer of confession, of repentance, and they keep saying, we were a stiff-necked people. We were disobedient, we were stiff-necked. I recall years ago, you know, as a university student, I was at uh, Varsity Christian Fellowship, a Bible conference, 
And Bishop Hua Yong, who is a Methodist bishop in Malaysia for one point in time, he was preaching from the book of Galatians. And I was so convicted of my sin that I started crying uncontrollably. I was weeping uncontrollably for two hours. I was so convicted by the Holy Spirit. Wow, I'm so sinful. And so for me, that was a key turning point in my own Christian life. From that moment onwards, it was as if I was given a new heart. And I just don't want to grieve God any longer by my sins. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, you know, or since then, never say no, far from it. But I think the general orientation changed. Previously, maybe I want God as my saviour, I wanted all the benefits, but I still wanted to cling on to my sins. But after the episode, my orientation changed. I knew that sin really gives the Lord, and so I wanted, you know, to change. I was deeply convicted to change. So I imagine God's Spirit was probably doing something similar in the days of Ezra Nehemiah. For me, this experience started some years ago when I prayed a dangerous but important prayer. Lord, please show me how sinful I am. <laughs> Simple but dangerous prayer, but very good. Lord, please show me how sinful I am. And since God has truly answered that prayer, my life has never been the change. It has been the same. And so I want to challenge all of us, pray this dangerous but very important prayer. Lord, show us how sinful we are. But at the same time then, how great is your salvation? Yet, very, despite very valid reasons to weep and to cry over one's sins, Nehemiah says, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And even send some to those who have nothing prepared. It's to be a day of celebration. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So Nehemiah repeats the reason why they are not supposed to weep and cry, even though they were convicted by sin. And he states the reason twice, this day is holy to the Lord your God. That's why don't cry. This day is holy, therefore you should not cry. So we normally don't connect the word holy with joy, right? That's not our natural association. Most of the time we will connect holy with the idea you know, of solemn, seriousness, or deep sorrow. Very seldom do we connect holy with joy, celebration, happiness. But maybe that's because our concept of holiness is shaped more by the worldly culture, popular culture rather than by scripture. You see, the, the word holy in the simplest sense just has this idea of being set apart. So let me give you a simple daily example. In some of our kitchens, we probably will have two sets or more of plates and cups and utensils and cutleries and so on and so forth. So one set probably is for your daily use the one that is not very colourful, not very fanciful, right? A bit worn out after years of using, washing. But we usually will reserve one or two sets for special occasions, like Christmas, Chinese New Year, special occasions where we host people for a celebratory meal and stuff like that. And so this fanciful set that we set apart for a special occasion is what it means to be holy. That's just the basic meaning of holy. It's not for daily use, but it's set aside, set aside for a special purpose. In fact, I think the modern word which best captures the sense of holiness is special. Special. Special in the sense of unique, special in the sense of a far more glorious purpose. So that's how we should understand the word holy. right? That is the basic meaning, to be set apart for a special purpose. So let's go a bit deeper. That these special occasions, right? that we set aside this special kitchenware and stuff, they're usually celebratory in nature, correct? How often do we use this special set of kitchenware in a gloomy way? Wow, very sad day. I'm going to use this special set of kitchenware. 
No, right? We usually do it because we are celebrating. Then we use this set-aside uh, cutlery utensils. And so in the same way, we need to retune and renew our minds to learn to associate holiness, not just with sorrow. There is a proper place for that. But let's also learn to renew our minds to connect holiness with joy. What I'm trying to teach us is that holiness isn't just associated with sorrow. Nehemiah connected holiness with joy. And so, in other words, you can be holy and happy. You can be holy and happy. So tell each other that. Tell your neighbor, your spouse next to you, you can be holy and happy. Let's do that. Say it like you mean it. <laughs> you can be holy and happy. And those online, you can key in as well, capital font, you can be holy and happy. Nehemiah says, therefore eat fatness and drink sweet drinks, because this day is holy to the Lord. It's good to be convicted of sin. That's wonderful. But now that you have known the law and you have repented, rejoice, because that is the proper outcome of true repentance. In case you're wondering, Nehemiah wasn't inventing a new practice as well. In the Old Testament, God stipulated three special festivals to be observed and celebrated with rejoicing. Deuteronomy chapter 16, God commands the Israelites to observe the festival of the unleavened bread, which is Passover, and then the festival of weeks, which is the Pentecost, and then the festival of the tabernacle. And in the context of Nehemiah, they were going to celebrate the festival of the tabernacle. In particular, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 11 to 14, the Word of God says the people are supposed to rejoice. God commands His people, rejoice at these festivals. Interesting, right? Why must you tell people to rejoice? Isn't it supposed to be something taken for granted? But obviously, God knows that we are people prone to sadness. So He says rejoice at these festivals. So again, we need to renew our minds according to the Word of God. Why should the devil or the world hold the monopoly on joy and happiness, on laughter. Why? Why should they hold the monopoly on these things? In fact, throughout history, it's the joy that Christians possess that made them holy, that made them set apart, made them special and different. A third century man was anticipating death, and he penned these last words to a friend. It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. Christians are supposed to be holy and happy. Maybe that's why some of our weakness is not really bearing fruit because we carry about a sad face. Who wants to join a sad club? Our Christians are supposed to be holy and happy. Again, like I said, the problem I suspect is that more of us are influenced by the world rather than by God's word and by God's spirit. Tony Rinke, senior writer at DesiringGod.org, he wrote this article and it says, It's not that Christians don't want God to be happy. It's just that we are slow to understand the theology that God is always, essentially, and completely happy. We may believe that He's happy sometimes. That makes sense to us. But is, is God always essentially and completely happy at the core of His being? 
And then he goes on to quote three important theologians, two early church fathers. First, Thomas Aquinas said so clearly, God is happiness by his essence. For he's happy not by acquisition, by getting things, or by participation in something else, but by his essence. On the other hand, men are happy by participation. We join in something, something affects us, then we rejoice. We think God is happy by participation, just like us. But God is happiness. Joy is fundamental to his triune nature. To find God is to find the fountain of all joy. So beautifully and simply put by St. Augustine, following after God is the desire of happiness. To reach God is happiness itself. And so we participate in joy, he writes, when we reach the essence of all joy, God himself. And then taking it from one of the most careful theologians of our age, Tony Rinke, quoted Richard Muller to say, God is essentially blessed and happy. Is that our understanding of who God is? Essentially, it is called happy. Now I want to add here that our finite human minds can never fully comprehend who God is. In our limited human experience, we will find it very hard to be both happy and sad at the same time. Maybe on rare occasions, we may come to this bittersweet occasion, right? Maybe a loved one who has been battling cancer for some months or years even passes on, so there is a sense of relief and happiness that this person's suffering has ended. But at the same time, we are sad because we can no longer interact and see and be with this person. So we may find ourselves once in a while on rare occasions in this bittersweet moment where we experience both sorrow and joy. But in general, we seldom find ourselves being able to experience both extremes, right, of both joy and happiness as well as sorrow, at least not at once. But not God. God is not like us at all. I don't know how it's possible, but to say that God experienced both sorrow and joy simultaneously, it is not incorrect. Does God grieve at our sins? Yes. Do we sin a lot of time, many times? Yes. Does God grieve? Yes. But at the same time, does God rejoice at our obedience, at salvation? And Jesus taught, it says, whenever a sinner comes to repentance, all the angels in heaven rejoice. Pretty sure there's a lot of salvation happening across the globe. All the time, they'll be rejoicing in heaven. So for us, you know, human mind, oh, how can it be you're happy and sorrowful at the same time? But that's because we are limited. Scripture gives us examples clearly of both, that God rejoices and also grieves. At the same time, God also, the scripture also tells us that God can be moved by what's happening in our world, by what we did. He can be moved by us. At the same time, the classical theologians will say God is unmoved because he's not affected by us. So classical theologians call this the impassibility of God. So again, our human minds cannot fully comprehend. How can it be that God is both happy and sad, at the same time, moved and unmoved? But that's because we are human. So the best way I try to accept this reality, not that I understand it, but I use a parallel example to try to accept this reality, is to use the example of light in physics. If you ever did physics as a subject in school, you will know that light possesses two qualities simultaneously. And most other physical objects in our world will not display both qualities at the same time, but not light. Light has this unique dual property. It possesses the qualities of a wave, so that it will bend around if it meets, like the property of a wave will bend around when it meets a barrier. But at the same time, it behaves like a particle. So if it hits an object, it will not proceed further. So those of us who know science, you will know this is true, right? A particle versus a wave. 
completely different realms, right, of physical properties. Yet, they coexist in this thing we call light. Isn't it interesting? Jesus says he is the light of the world. He's 100% God, 100% human. Ah, how is it possible? Why is he not 50-50? No, Scripture tells us he's 100% God, 100% human. Just like light. He's 100% a wave, 100% a particle. Ah, oh, cannot understand. But that's the reality from physical experiments. And clearly from the Scripture, both are true. Now, the church fathers, the early church fathers, they had this brilliant analogy to describe this reality, although, you know, all analogies have their limitations, so we cannot press them too hard. But this is a good analogy to describe this reality. Imagine placing a piece of iron in fire, and long enough, the iron glows because of the fire, right? So at that moment, when the iron is glowing, the early church father says this, the fire is in the iron, and the iron is still in the fire. They are distinct. The fire is the fire. The iron is iron. It doesn't lose its properties. It's still Fe from the, from the chemistry point of view. It's still iron. But at that moment, the two have become one. And that's how they resolve the tension of Jesus being 100% God, 100% human. So coming back to our understanding of how God can experience both sorrow and joy simultaneously, how he can be moved by us and yet unmoved by us, we may not fully comprehend, but hopefully this analogy will help us accept this reality because Scripture clearly affirms a God like that. He's essentially happy in his call. Tony Renke then quoted a preacher named Henry Donald Morris Spence who made an unforgettable point. He says, God is so joyous that he finds joy even in us. Think about that. God is so joyous that he finds joy even in us. And Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 declares, The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Rejoice over you with singing. In the New Jerusalem Bible version, is the best. He says, Yahweh your God is there with you. The warrior savior, he will rejoice over you with happy song. He will renew you by his love. He will dance, dance with shouts of joy over you. Now let that sink in for a moment. As traditional Chinese, I think most of us, right, from this background, that is not the normal way we express love, at least not for me when I was growing up. The way my parents or aunties and relatives show love is to ask the simple question, have you eaten? For them, that's their greatest demonstration of love, making sure you're well fed. And so because of our growing up environment, we may not necessarily easily connect with this scripture of the God who loves us so much, He rejoices over us and dances over us with shouts of joy. So God really is not stingy in expressing His love for us. Maybe we are stingy ourselves, maybe our parents were stingy or don't know how to show love, but not God. So God is not like that at all. Again, as Tony Rinke rightly observes, Joyful people more easily express joy, just as God delights to rejoice over His children because He is essentially joyful. God is essentially joyful. And then he concludes his article by asserting that the happiness of God is the strength we all need. The happiness of God is the strength we all need. Indeed, what greater strength can there be than to know that God rejoices over us, that we are loved, God delights in us. 
So tell each other that God delights in you. God delights in you. Maybe you don't feel like saying it to your spouse <laughs> or to your children or to your parents. But please say that. God delights in you. Because it's not about how we feel, it's what the Word of God says. And God says He delights over us, He rejoices over us, He dances with shouts of joy over us. And then coming back to Nehemiah 8.10, Rinki says, Whether the joy of the Lord here refers to the joy God has in Himself or the joy He gives to us, we have no real hope of joy or strength unless God is happy. God does not give us any joy outside of the joy He has in Himself already, which means God's happiness is our strength. And this is where we find our strength for life, for pain, for trials, for marriage, for child raising, for missions, for everything. The strength we need for this life is found in the essential joy of God. You will never be spiritually stronger than your God is happy. You will never be spiritually stronger than knowing in your head, not just in your head, but in your heart, in your spirit, that God is happy. God's joy is our strength. Settle it biblically. God is essentially happy within himself. If that's not your understanding, I pray that this will now become a new understanding. God is essentially happy within himself all the time. So again, is this our understanding of who God is? Or is our concept of who God is filled with one with anger rather than joy? A religious spirit, a stoic mind, typically, we know, they will frown upon both sorrow and joy. And this is certainly true in certain philosophies which promote detachment from all kinds of emotions. You must detach from all emotions because all emotions are wrong. Even certain segments of Christianity have been polluted by such ways of thinking, whereby any expression of emotions, whether it's sorrow or joy, both of them are to be frowned upon. Bruce Larson recounts the true story of a very conservative church in Omaha, and I'm not going to say the denomination because I think we need to honour every denomination that God has brought forth for a love for a reason. And so in this conservative congregation, the people were given helium-filled balloons, and they were told to release them at some point in the service when they experienced joy, they felt like experiencing or expressing the joy in their hearts. Since they were taught to be conservative Christians all their lives, they weren't free to say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, and stuff like that. So they were given the balloons instead to release you know, their joy to the Lord. So all throughout the service, balloons ascended. But when the service was over, one third of the balloons were still unreleased. So I pray for us, Amokyo Methodist Church family, we will not be like that church. May we be uninhibited in our worship. And when we come to celebrate the Lord whom we worship, the God who saves us, we should celebrate with joy. We must learn to let our balloons go. Let us be like David, who danced before the Lord with all his might. He didn't care what was happening. He was just rejoicing that the Ark of the Covenant is with him. God's presence was with him. God is so worthy to be praised. I also know there may be some of us, the minority in our midst, who wonder whether it's my personality, you know, or my charismatic inclination, you know, to emphasize joy. I'm telling us from the scriptural basis, is not. Tony Renke, whom I quoted earlier, he writes for a website that is inclined towards Reformed theology. Some of you may know what this means. Don't let anyone deceive you that joy is not for those of us who are inclined towards Reformed theology. If you don't know what it means, it doesn't matter. But I'm telling us it is not just for a certain group of believers. Let me give you another example. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous Welsh a Protestant minister who was influential in the Calvinist wing of the British evangelical movement in the 20th century. is a fantastic expositor of the Bible. He wrote a book entitled Joy Unspeakable. 
joy unspeakable, power and renewal in the Holy Spirit. So once we understand the scriptures correctly, we will see that joy really should accompany all of us. And in the children's Sunday school song, we always teach them the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, chapter 5, verse 22. You know it very well. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Number two, you know. <laughs> After love, which is so important, fundamental, home of our heart, there's so much love, then joy. So we need to recapture again this sense of joy and holiness. That's our heritage as Christians. Jesus criticized the Pharisees because they often displayed this sad face in public of repentance. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, he scolded them, he says, don't be like the Pharisees. Every time they fast, they like to put on all these ashes on their face, wear sackcloth to tell everyone that they're fasting. But when you're fasting, dress up normally. Put on makeup, beautify yourself even, so that the Father who sees what is being done in secret will reward you. So Jesus criticized them because they like to show only one side of what it means you know, to be followers of God. And for Jesus, that was a terrible representation of their Father in heaven. Jesus, on the other hand, knows God intimately, and he's someone who knows how to celebrate and to have party. <laughs> Jesus partied, you know. Of course, those words are not used in the Gospels. But the very fact that the Pharisees accused him of eating and drinking with who? Gluttons. Sinners. What do you think they were doing? Having a candlelight party. Ah? No. Gluttons. <laughs> what do you think they were doing? They were having a party. And that's why the Pharisees, they had this religious spirit. They were upset with him. Why are you doing this? But Jesus says, no, why are you doing that? Our Father in heaven is a God of joy. And so Jesus knows what it means to have joy. And why do you think Jesus went to the mountain to pray all the time? Because he knows the Father brings him joy. It's not driven by duty. It's driven by delight. The joy of the Lord became his strength. And so Jesus' entry into our world in this Advent season is a reminder, really, of the joy that he brings in his kingdom. Again, Romans chapter 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. It's all in the scriptures. And in another verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why, why was Jesus able to endure the crucifixion? Why? So painful, right? For the joy set before him, because he knew he's going back. Wow, I'm going back to a great place, to my father's side. In heaven, there is fullness of joy. It's okay. Six hours of torture or overnight torture, it's okay. It's temporary compared to the joy, everlasting joy. So my dear Amokyo family, uh, please do not fall into the trap of the Stoics and detach from all emotions. That is not Christian understanding at all. Don't downplay the biblical basis for emotions, both sorrow and joy. I do know also that certain preachers, they try to distinguish between joy and happiness, that joy is an inner state or even a choice that you make, and that happiness is a, a feeling, though it's fleeting, right? So don't put too much emphasis on that. But seriously, how can you be joyous and not be happy? Think about that. How can you be joyous and not be happy? So there is nothing wrong with a happy Christian. Do you find there's something wrong with a happy Christian? If not, if you find something wrong with that, then we need to renew our minds once again. We need to be 
Coming back to the scripture, we can be both holy and happy. In fact, if you want to remove emotions from us, it will make us less human. And that's never God's desire. Yes, in our sinful states, emotions can be misleading. It's true. In our sinful state, emotions can be misleading. But in our redeemed state, emotions like joy and happiness, they become powerful witness for our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that I've established a biblical basis for joy and happiness, the question is, what if we don't have joy? What if we just cannot experience joy in this very difficult season of our lives? And this is where we return to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. And the word joy that is used in this verse is hedvat, which is an Aramaic loan word. It's a word borrowed from Aramaic language. The rest of the Old Testament, most of it at least, is written in classical Hebrew, but not this particular word used here. And according to dictionary.com, I went to do some finding, the English language has as many as up to 10,000 loan words, borrowing frequently from French, Latin, German, so and so forth. We know the English language really can be said to be a melting pot of many cultures and linguistic backgrounds. Famous uh, loan words in English that we kind of take for granted nowadays, cafe, which is from the French, <laughs> deja vu, rendezvous, all these words come from the French. And we can understand why, because France is next to England, right? So because of the cultural interaction, they exchange words. So coming back to this hedvat, which is an Aramaic loan word. It's no surprise really that Aramaic is included, because Hebrew is to Aramaic as Mandarin Chinese is to Hokkien, Teochew, or all your dialects. That's the same, right? And we use it in Singapore especially. We are so good at mixing languages, using loan words all the time. Rojak. <laughs> That's what we do. Now here in this passage, this word used is only used twice in the Old Testament. The other mention of it is in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 27. And this is what 1 Chronicles 16, 27 says, Splendor and majesty are before God. Strength and joy are in His dwelling place. That's who God is. That's where joy is expressed. I want to suggest to us that it's not just a simple case, you know, of a post-exilic author, someone who came back from the exile, borrowing a word, because by the time Aramaic became more in use, right? So that so much so that Jesus eventually also spoke Aramaic. So it's not just a simple case of using a word that is a vocab that is available at its time, because in the same chapter. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 12, verse 17, as well in the same book, chapter 12, verses, uh, verse 43, the other far more common Hebrew word, which is simcha, was used. And so the same author, in the same book, uses the normal word for joy four times. But in this verse, he chooses to use an Aramaic loan word. Why did he do so? As I was first looking at this text, my own exegetical question was, is the joy of the Lord something that God possesses? Or is it the joy of the Lord, something that God gives to us? Sorry, a bit technical in this regard, but let me try to give you a parallel example, comparative example, so you kind of understand what I'm trying to say here as a scholar. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And so this love of Christ, should it be interpreted as a subjective genitive? That is, God's love, Christ's love for humanity something that God possesses, or, or is it an objective genitive? Our love for God, Paul's love for Christ, 
Do, does Paul want to preach the gospel? Because the love of Christ for humanity compels him. Wow, God loves people so much, I must preach the gospel. Or, I love Christ so much, I must preach the gospel. So what is it? Most scholars, in this case, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, favor the first. It is God's love for humans, and so it is the subjective genitive compels Paul to preach the gospel. Although, I think you can also see it can function as, at both levels. Lah. You don't really have to choose. Now, looking back at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, especially in the light of 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 27, which says again, Splendor and majesty are before God. Strength and joy are in His dwelling place. Plus the fact that the author chose to use an Aramaic word, I think that the joy of the Lord here is a subjective genitive. In other words, it is a joy that God possesses. It is the joy that God possesses. It comes from His presence. And so the first reason I believe the Holy Spirit prompted the use of this Aramaic loan word maybe because Aramaic is the heart language of Jesus. Jesus spoke Aramaic. And what better way to represent and to point towards the God who will come into our world than to use this word to show that it is in His core. God is essentially happy in His heart, in His core. God is the source of joy and happiness, the very point that I've been trying to make so far. But I think there is also a second possible reason why Nehemiah is making this point, using this loan word, and that is this. If we lack joy in ourselves, if we lack joy because of our current circumstances, we can always borrow it. We can always borrow it from the Lord. And so that's the title of today's sermon, Borrowed Joy. As I've established earlier, God is essentially happy and joyous in Himself. There can be no greater joy than God Himself. And so all this world offers really is temporary, superficial happiness. But not God. God gives to us everlasting, true, unspeakable joy. But just as Khadvat is a loan word borrowed from Aramaic, so we too can borrow or loan joy from the Lord. So how do we borrow Alone joy from the Lord. John chapter 16, verse 24, I think gives us the answer, the simplest answer. Jesus says, Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. And in the King James Version, that your joy may be full. Wow. This verse, short verse, again, power-packed. First of all, it tells us we are designed for joy. Jesus didn't say, ask and you receive, then you know God is holy. He didn't say that. He says, ask and you rejoice and receive so that your joy will be full. God designed joy to be the outcome of our answered prayer. For a season in my life, a short season, I was influenced by this author, Gary Thomas, who wrote this book called Sacred Marriage. He propounded this idea that marriage is not, you know, just to, it's more to make you holy rather than to make you happy. So that's the title of his book. What if God designed marriage to make you holy more than to make you happy? And in the context of the American society, I think I can understand where he's coming from because people just get married for based on their emotions, right? Just to pursue happiness. And so he was trying to bring in the corrective balance. God also designed marriage to make us holy. But as I reflected more deeply, I think this is really a false dichotomy. Who gets married to be sad? <laughs> We get married because we are happy with that person, right? 
And so it's a false dichotomy. Dichotomy. We can be both holy and happy. And marriage is supposed to be that. Both holy and happy. So we don't really have to choose between the two. You can, again, I say to you, you can be holy and happy. And so that's the first reason God designed it, really, for our joy. That's the outcome of answered prayer. Also, Jesus taught us that to experience joy is to ask in His name. Whose name do we borrow when we pray? Jesus. Uh, Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. But ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be full. I shared earlier how I once cried for two hours under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But there are also episodes in my life, you know, where I laughed and laughed and laughed under the power of the same Holy Spirit. Just give you one example. There was one trip, particular mission trip in India. We were praying, we were just praising God before ministry, time and night, before the gospel rally, the healing ministry. And so as we were praying, one person started quoting Luke chapter 10, verse 18, which says, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like night, lightning from the sky. So that's the quote. Right, the Bible verse came out. And the moment we all heard that Bible verse, we just started roaring in laughter and celebration. There's no coordination at all. We were all one in the Spirit. But we were rejoicing. Why? Because Satan is a defeated foe. We were celebrating like Singapore will win the Suzuki Cup. Wow! We were celebrating that Jesus is the King. He has defeated Satan. Satan has fallen like lightning from the sky. And so we rejoice in the Lord. Earlier, I had challenged all of us to pray this dangerous prayer, right? Ask God to show us how sinful we are. And I still want you to pray that prayer. But I also ask now to challenge all of you to pray, to experience joy unspeakable, an outpouring of God's joy in our lives. And that's the kind of joy that Jesus looked forward to as he looked forward to returning to God his Father. Sometimes people ask me, especially, you know, children, Pastor, why pray if God already knows what you need? Sometimes I try to tell my son to pray, then he'll tell me, but God already knows what. Now, John chapter 16, verse 24 really teaches us why. Because answered prayer will give us joy. God, our Father, knows what we need, sure. But why did He design prayer? Because John 16, 24 says, Ask and you receive, then your joy may be full. God designed the process that you pray, not because I don't know what you need, so that you can know how good the Father is, how generous He is, and then you can experience joy. What a beautiful design, isn't it? God designed prayer, answered prayer, to be the channel for us to experience His joy. So what difficult circumstances are we going through? Do we find it hard to have joy in ourselves or in our circumstances? Well, maybe this is the divine moment for you to learn to borrow joy, to receive joy, to ask for joy from the Lord. Author Leo Buscalia tells this story about his mother and this misery dinner that they had. It was the night after his father came home and it looked as if you know, it was going to be bad because he was going to bankruptcy because his partner had absconded with all the firm's funds and money. To everyone's surprise, the mother went out and sold some jewellery to buy food for a sumptuous feast. Other members of the family scolded her for it. I mean, we can understand why, right? We are already going to be bankrupt. You took whatever money we had, a jewellery, instead of saving it, investing it, trying to save the company, you went to buy a sumptuous feast. But the mother replied, the time for joy is now, when we need it most, not next week. 
the time for joy is now, when we need it the most, not next week. And so her courageous act rallied the family. So if we are in deep need of joy, don't wait. Ask from the Lord. Borrow from the Lord right now. And here's the amazing thing, and I deliberately couch the sermon in this way. Borrowing joy actually is incorrect (laughs) because, first of all, none of us can ever repay God. Because we can never return to God what He possesses in abundance. Imagine the whole ocean and we just borrowed joy from Him one drop. You return one drop to the ocean. (laughs) You can never repay God what He has in abundance. And second and most importantly, we cannot return to God what He chooses to freely give to us. You don't need to borrow from the Lord. You just need to ask, actually. Ask and you'll receive. God loves His children so much and He longs to give to us because He's our Father. So to God, being holy and being happy are not polar opposites. You don't have to choose between one or the other. As Christians, as we pursue holiness, happiness will pursue us. As we pursue holiness, happiness will pursue us. So again, do we lack joy and strength? If so, John 16, 24, Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask boldly, ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete, your joy will be full. As Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 declares, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Once we know deeply that God is happy with us, He loves us, He delights in us, then we regain the strength to overcome the circumstances we are currently facing. Come, let us pray. I'm going to give you a moment for you to just do business with the Lord. You may want to pray a prayer of conviction, of holiness. But for some of us, you may also want to pray the prayer of joy, of happiness. If you are lacking joy, ask from the Lord. I'm going to give you a minute of silence for you to just do your own business with the Lord. Jesus, we come in your name. We borrow the mighty name of Jesus. And we ask for joy. Joy unspeakable. Joy that will give us strength to overcome the circumstances of our lives. For Lord, you delight in us. We want to receive that joy. The joy of your love and your delight over us. We thank you. Truly may the joy of of the Lord be our strength this day and forevermore. Amen.